handout for today. So we are in week three, and we're talking about PCA distinctives, so really doctrinal distinctives. What are things that are different about a Reformed Presbyterian denomination versus a lot of other denominations? And so that's what we're going to be walking through with some of kind of the, the hot topic items. Now, our goal in this, and I even put this on your little handout, we're not trying to do an in-depth study of every single thing we talk about this morning. Uh, I wish we had time to do that, but you could take any one of these topics, and I'm not exaggerating when I say you can easily put together a month-long study on each one. And so the goal for this morning is to walk through each one and make sure you just have the big-picture overview of what's going on and why the PCA holds to it, And if you have that level of understanding, then we move on. (laughs) So I'd love to talk about them more in depth, especially some of my favorite things are on here to talk about. But we're going to have to keep moving at a decent pace to get through everything we need to talk about this morning. Uh, So any questions about the the game plan? No. All right. I didn't think there'd be. All right. So before we get started, though, there's one other thing I want to mention is we noted this and can't remember it was last week or the week before. But I want to give you a reminder of it before we start in. Do do you remember the term theological triage and what that refers to? Okay, Dave says yes. Does everybody else remember what that means? Okay, so it means that there's tiers of importance to different doctrines. So not every doctrine is of equal importance. They're all important because they're all from Scripture, but they're different levels. So, for instance, if you hold to the gospel with an orthodox view, that is very important. If you throw out the atonement, if you throw out uh, repentance and faith in Christ, you add anything to the mix, you're messing up a core foundational principle of the faith. And if you do that, then it's quite possible you're going off the rails in a heresy and you're not even going to be genuinely saved unless you go back to the core fundamentals. On the other hand, when we come to worship and we have hymns and we sing psalms here, If someone stood up and started singing contemporary music, uh, that is an issue for some people. For some people, it's not, right? Uh, That is a way down the line on theological triage. It's a very low priority uh, matter. Not meaning it's unimportant, but meaning you shouldn't call someone a heretic because they have a different view on the worship music we should sing. Uh, That's an allowable difference of Christian liberty and views, but it doesn't mean you're not a believer if you hold a different view than someone else. Right. And so that that leveling of our doctrines and if we want to be well nuanced and and uh, we hold unity of the body as in a very important and critical thing, we have to be careful to triage things. So, OK, I don't believe Christ is God. OK, you're heretical. OK, uh, you know, I think we should pray before we pass out the offering plate instead of after or something like that. OK, that's just a difference of opinion. We can still worship together, be brothers, uh, be sis- brothers and sisters. So. Uh, that's theological triage. So as we go through these issues, uh, there's some more fundamental things we're going to mention where you have to believe these things to be in the church. And then there's other things where we can disagree, and that's all right. Uh, so just note that before we start. All right, so first, uh, we kind of came out of the, not kind of, we came out of the Reformation. Uh, if you trace Presbyterian roots, they go all the way back to the Reformation. And soon, on October 31st, we'll celebrate Reformation Day. And... Well, I guess there's only one uh, active ruling elder in the room. But that's something I want to talk to you all about Wednesday night is a Reformation Day event of some sort. Uh, but to celebrate the Reformation and the peeling away from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, what is the big date that we all think of for the Reformation? 
Well, the 31st, yeah, the date of the year, sorry. What year and what person kind of got everything rolling, though, according to Martin Luther, right, 1517, 95 Theses on the Wittenberg uh, Castle Door. So his grievances with the Catholic Church. And the problem with the Catholic Church is that they had gone off the rails in many respects, and really they had skewed the gospel. I'll leave it at that. Um, in terms of talking about the gospel. But they had added in all kinds of things. They had indulgences. There was corruption, saint veneration, worship. Uh, but really, the core issue behind all those things, the reason all those corruption, that corruption and bad practices started, is they placed tradition over scripture. And so over time, papal decrees and what the church practices became more important than the actual scripture and what it said. So, of course, they never would have told you, oh, we're rejecting Scripture and holding to tradition. But in a lot of ways, that's what the Roman Catholic Church had done. And so Luther sought to reform the Catholic Church first. He wasn't originally trying to start a whole new movement. He was trying to reform the church and bring it back to a biblical foundation. And there were others who were trying to do the same thing, but sought to do it in very different ways. Uh, like uh, Desiderius Erasmus, try saying that five times fast. But anyway, so the Reformation began with that, and then it grew into more and more groups. And the goal in the Reformation, it was not to start something entirely new. It was not a new theory or a new form of religion. What was the real point of the Reformation? Do you all all know this? To go back to the Bible, to go back to the early church and recover the tradition that the Catholics had really lost. That was the goal. It wasn't to start something completely brand new. They weren't coming up with all these new ideas of Scripture and how to understand Scripture on their own. It was something that was founded in Augustine and the whole early church, and over time was just slowly lost in the Catholic Church. So that's the Reformation, and that's what really got it rolling. And then down the road, of course, you have Presbyterianism and and other Reformed groups. Uh, Any questions about the big picture, though, of the Reformation? And again, we could talk historical details for hours, but we're not going to do that. All right. Well, there is one thing that they kind of centered everything around in the Reformation, and it's called the five solas. How many of you are familiar with the five solas? Yeah. All right. Well, give me some solas. All right. So sola fide, meaning faith alone. What are some others? Scriptura. Right. Scripture. All right. Gratia. So grace alone. All right. Now we have to change the uh, this part. So solus what? Christus. So Christ alone and then soli. Right. Soli Deo. Gloria, and I'm no Latin expert by any means. I just, uh, but for some reason, this, these change with this. Don't ask me why. But anyway, so faith alone. Right, they have to match the word they're modifying. I just don't understand what. <laughs> yeah, gender, number, part of speech. I don't know. Uh, but faith alone, Scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and to what's the right way to say that? God's glory alone. All right, so what does it mean, sola fide, faith alone? Right. Faith is the instrument by which we lay hold of the promise of the gospel. 
And coming out of the Catholic Church, that was a big deal because the Catholics, they didn't hold to faith alone. Now, maybe some Catholics did, but Catholic dogma, Catholic tradition added things to faith. So it wasn't faith alone. It was faith and works or was faith works and maybe saint worship or faith works, saint worship and maybe indulgences. So you can add to the list of what they believe, but they kept adding things to the core of the gospel. And when you add things to the core of the gospel, what really happens? Right. Really, what you're saying is, well, it's not faith alone. You don't even need faith. If you just do enough good works, you know, visiting uh, holy sites and things like that, you can be saved through that. And, of course, we know from Scripture that that's not a possibility. Faith plus anything other than just faith alone is nothing, really, because it's not really faith anymore. Uh, so faith in Christ is, of course, the core of the gospel. And the Catholic Church had very much corrupted that in its teaching uh, for many different historical reasons. All right, Sola Scriptura. What is Sola Scriptura teaching? Right. And again, contradicting the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church had said, what was the supreme authority in deciding any matter? Tradition, the Pope. It was what the Church said. It wasn't. It didn't have to do with Scripture. Now, they might have tried to base it in Scripture, say, well, this is what Scripture's told us to do. Uh, but the point is that they had gone far beyond Scripture. And both with Sola Fide and Sola Scriptura, does it remind you of any early church group, or not early church, excuse me, group that was around during Jesus' day that had done very similar things to the Jewish faith? The Pharisees. They added regulations. They added laws that were nowhere in Scripture. They held to their tradition more... Uh, they held it of more value to more value than the word, than what God had actually told them. They said, well, God gave us a guard here around this uh, sin, so let's add ten more fences, and let's add a new way, and let's just carry on with our traditions. So, you know, tithing, mint, and dill, and cumin, but forgetting the weightier matters of the law. So the Pharisees and the Roman Catholic Church, if you compare the two, you'll see a lot of similarities uh, with what they did with the faith. All right. So, uh, sola gratia, I wrote grace, didn't I? Switching back and forth between languages is tricky for a small brain. All right, sola gratia, grace alone, what does that mean? Right. You did nothing to earn it. Grace is something that is undeserved by you. Uh, mercy is something that you, you sinned against God, and he has to show you mercy, but it's a form of grace because, again, something you didn't deserve. But we're saved uh, by grace alone because it is up to God's good pleasure and his grace. Nothing we did, nothing we earned, uh, nothing that he looked into the future to foresee and so chose us and saved us. Grace alone. All right, and then the next one I hope is fairly self-explanatory. Solus Christus. What does that mean? Right, because this is an instrument. Uh, faith and faith is nothing. <laughs> faith is dependent upon what you put your faith in. Uh, so you put your faith in Christ alone, um, and that's the gospel. And then soli deo gloria, fitting us last on the list, right? Not because of importance as in least important, but last on the list because it's a great summary. Because all things, in every way, how our salvation is worked out, uh, what Christ has done, how he has worked faith in our hearts and called us to the, to the church, um, the displaying of his grace, all that is to God's glory. 
Everything in the end is to highlight the glory of God and his majesty. Uh, what's the first answer to the, the first Westminster Shorter Catechism question? What's the chief end of man? Right. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so you see solely Dea Gloria. So these were the building blocks of the Reformation on which everything else they did, uh, all the doctrine was built. It's a built upon these core values that are from Scripture that really were going against the corruptions of the Catholic Church that they came out of. All right, any questions about that before we go to the next section? All right. Well, these are still the core things we hold to in all of our doctrinal stuff, and so I wanted you to see that it started really early on with the Reformed Church. As soon as we uh, left the Catholic Church, we were holding to the core tenets of the faith and Scripture. All right, well, let's move into some more specific doctrines of note. Uh, again, we're, our goal is not to point out every nuance in these things. It's to do an overview. Uh, so... As much as I would love to debate and argue about every fine point, uh, let's try to do our best, and you can try to help me do my best as well as I get sidetracked, to stick to the big picture on these doctrines. All right. So first is covenant. Now, the Reformed Church, especially the Presbyterian Church, is very covenantal in how it's set up. And what I mean by that is we, we found all of our doctrine and everything around covenant. Because God interacts with his people in covenant. He doesn't go outside of covenant to react with, to interact with us. He interacts with people. He relates to people only through covenant. So what is a covenant would obviously be the next question. God relates to us through covenant. What does it mean? What is a covenant? So do you all have any definitions or anything in mind for a covenant? An agreement between two or more people? Yeah, that's a good definition of it. An agreement between two or more people. Uh, so let's build on that. Biblically, what are some other elements of a covenant from what you know in Scripture? Their conditions? Right. Promises, yep. Right, if you break it, there's some consequence, yeah. Uh, and no, curses is a fine word, because that's more often than not in the Old Testament, that's the language it's given in, is in the language of cursing. Obedience to the covenant or holding to the covenant brings blessing, or whatever the reward is prom- that is promised in Scripture, whereas disobedience, a breaking of the covenant, uh, brings curses. So the, my favorite definition of covenant is that it is, it's, this is from Palmer O. Robertson, this is not, me coming up with this definition on my own. It's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. So every covenant is sealed by the shedding of blood because of sin. Because of sin, there has to be blood to cover over that sin. And scripture reiterates that in multiple points, especially in Hebrews. Uh, but even if you look at Genesis, right after the fall, what does God do for Adam and Eve to clothe them? He kills animals. He shows the way by which sin has to be covered. There has to be death. There has to be punishment. And so right away you see that. So in a covenant, it's the same way. A covenant is sealed with blood. But it's also a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Uh, so there are covenants between people, yes, but 
in the biblical sense of a covenant, it's always administered by God. You don't say, hey, God, I want to make a new covenant with you on your own. That doesn't happen. <laughs> God is the one who initiates the covenant. If you go, you look at Abraham, God initiated the covenant. Go with Noah, God initiated the covenant. Uh, so you have the elements there. It's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. And that's the way in which God relates to humans. Now, there are, covenant theology goes into so many different avenues, and we've got to try to stay focused. And this is a struggle for me, because I want to talk about all of it. But we can't do that. So there's two basic covenants going throughout the creation of the world. Uh, do you know what those covenants are before I tell you what they are? Was it? Right. Correct. So works and grace, those are the two covenants, uh, the main covenants that you see throughout Scripture. So when was the covenant of works established? With Adam. Right. Do not eat of this one tree, serve the Lord in the garden. And theologians believe that if Adam and Eve had kept serving without falling into sin... That it would have been rewarded in some way, brought into some higher state of not being able to sin. But instead, they chose to disobey. They chose to break the covenant of works because they wanted to be their own gods. And so what you see is a failure to hold to the covenant of works. And the covenant of works just says, if you are perfect, as in you have never sinned, and positively you do good works, you earn favor with God, then you will be blessed. That's the covenant of works. But, of course, we see that Adam and Eve fall, and then what is promised right after the fall? Death, right. So that's the punishment for breaking the covenant of works is death. But then what's the positive promise that's also given? Grace. Right, Genesis 3.15, that there is a Savior who's going to come and rescue you. So you have creation, you have fall, in which the covenant of works has already been active and is active, and then at the fall, there's given the promise of the covenant of grace. So as you trust in God to cover your sins and you repent to him, he offers salvation. And of course, throughout the Old Testament, that picture of how God is going to do it is being built up. And then, of course, we see the full manifestation of that in Christ. And so the covenant of grace operates by Jesus' blood covering over your sins. But it's not just his blood covering your sin. What else, in what other way is Christ also saving you? So he pays your penalty for breaking the covenant and he does something else. Right. Right. So we have active and passive obedience. So uh, Christ not only died on behalf of your sin where you fell and failed the covenant of works, but he also perfectly fulfills a covenant of works, and then he imputes that righteousness, that righteous standing, that blamelessness to you, his child. And so as you're in covenant with God under the covenant of grace, Christ has really fulfilled the covenant of works for you, and then in Christ you are uh, saved and declared righteous. Any questions about that? Yes, it is. Sorry, I meant to say that and I forgot already. Uh, Christ. It, it stands for Christ. So that's a key row in Greek, uh, Christos. So key is just that CH sound and a row is just an R, basically. And those are the first two letters of Christ. And so me and 
I got this from my pastor, Morganton, but other men do this too. Key row XP is just Christ. So. <laughs> XP? Yeah, you got to get more XP. Rank up, right? Uh, no, only Christ. Sorry, only Christ. And as you see me write XP, that's always what I'm referring to as Christ. But if you ever forget, just ask me. Because uh, I don't even think about it half the time I write XP instead of Christ. And I can see why that could confuse somebody. So, uh, yeah. But only Christ could fulfill the covenant of works. Uh, but technically, all along the way through the Old Testament, the covenant of works is still active, meaning if anybody was ever perfect and earn active obedience, they could be saved by it. But because of the fall, because of sin, because of original sin, corrupting us all, nobody could do that except for Christ. Uh, but that doesn't mean the covenant of works was inactive. Uh, you are saved through the covenant of works by Christ. <laughs> so it didn't go away is what I'm trying to say. All right, and then one other note about the covenant of grace. We're not going to walk through these all, uh, but you do see it listed in a sub-point there. All the other covenants you see in the Old Testament, those are all subparts of the larger covenant of grace. They all build on that covenant. They all explain in more detail elements of that covenant. They all explain things that Christ has to do for you. Uh, so all those, the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants, those are all to teach God's people over time as you move closer and closer to the coming of Christ. Uh, so you don't have like 20 different covenants. You really have two, and one of them has a lot of smaller points throughout Scripture. All right, any questions about covenant? Yeah, I was trying to not confuse. That's why I did that. And that's where I'd love to talk about everything. But, yeah, there's one more um, that actually both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, if you ask me, fall under that one covenant. And so there's a covenant called the covenant of redemption. And what that is is the Trinity, before creation, before time began, because, remember, time was created by God, um, before all that began, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit agreed together to create a world knowing that they would fall, that humankind would fall, and they planned, a, uh, they put together a plan of redemption. That's why it's called the covenant of redemption. And they agreed to what their roles would be in everything uh, in the covenant before creation ever occurred. So that's called the covenant of redemption because God knows everything, right? So he knew when he created us that Adam and Eve were going to fall. And he knew that he could either punish us all or rescue us. And so God in his grace chose to put together a plan of redemption. So that's the covenant of redemption. It's that just agreement in the Trinity to save his people, basically. Um, and under that, I would put the covenant of grace and works. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. because That is a major covenant. I was just uh, <laughs> trying not to get too bogged down because uh, that can be confusing at the same time. All right. Does that make sense? Did I just confuse anybody with that explanation? Okay. All right, well, let's move on to the next page. I believe it's the next page for you as well. Uh, to predestination. Now, this is a fun one. Uh, so let's start with Scripture. So go to Romans 8. <clears throat> so Romans 8, and I'll read 28. Through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. Just that verse alone, what a statement of, of hope and confidence, right? All things work together for good. Not how we want them all the time, but for good. Uh, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that's called like uh, the golden chain of salvation. And what you see there is really all the steps. There are a few smaller ones that are kind of included in some of the bigger points there. But it's really the path of God foreknowing, calling, predestining, choosing, saving his people. That's what those verses highlight. Uh, And so just to walk through them again, he foreknew, meaning before he created anything, he knew what would happen and he knew his people. Okay, those who he foreknew, he also predestined. So he chose them, he elected them, he set them apart to be his own, to conform them, you see that language in 29, to the image of his son. He chose them to make them like Christ, set them apart to make them Christ's brothers. Uh, And then you move into verse 30, and the ones who he predestined, he called, meaning he gave them the call of the gospel, he brought them to faith, he gave them a chance to respond to the gospel with faith. And to the ones he called, he also justify. So he didn't just call them, say, here's the promise and drop them off and see what happened. He called them and he justified them through Christ. Through faith in Christ, he justifies them and makes them righteous. And if he has done all that, if he has justified them, then what's the last step in the chain? Glorify. He will complete the process of making them like Christ. He will bring it full circle and bring them to glory, to glorify them. And so that's the chain of salvation. Now, we're going to break down a little bit more than that, though. So, y'all, I'm sure are familiar with this acronym you see in your uh, handouts. Using all my different colors here, because why not? Oh, the bottom's going to be hard to write there. All right, so the acronym is TULIP. Now, do you know where this came from? Five points of Calvinism, right. That's the other name for it, and some people like to, to pick. I'm a three-point Calvinist. I'm a three-and-a-half. I'm a four. Uh, I think it's hard to cut one out, but I understand what people are saying when they say that. Uh, but let's write out. Um, actually, first, yeah, I was saying where they came from. So, ironically enough, this is not something that was people came up with on their own. What happened is there was something called the Remonstrance in the Netherlands, Anyway, there were people who were against the doctrine of election, and they came up with five points against the doctrine. And so what the reformers did, and people who were going back and forth with them, they came up with five counterpoints to refute them. So we often, people treat this like it was this invention or something uh, that was sought up all on our own to positively teach. Well, actually, it was a reaction. And it does positively teach, but it was actually a reaction initially. And so what are the, the what is the acronym? What is the T for? Right. Total depravity. Does that mean that man is as evil as he can be? Is that what the total means? No. What does the total and total depravity mean? Right. Every man is affected by it. Every part of man, his heart, mind, soul, and body are affected by sin and the fall. There's none of us that escapes total 
depravity. So it's not that we're as evil as we can be. It's that every part of us is affected by the fall and corrupted. Um, and so why we need grace in its entirety. All right, and then what's the next one for the you? All right, so what is election according to the Romans passage or other passages you know of that God chooses? So what does it mean that it is unconditional? Right. He does not choose based on our merit. He does not choose because he looks into the future and sees, well, Christian, person A will be a better Christian than person B, therefore I choose A. That is not what happens. It is not foreknowledge in that sense of seeing who the best Christian is. It's not because he knows we'll do something great. Uh, he chooses us based on his own will. and We don't know why, but it's not because of us. Scripture, and we'll look at passages here in a second, Scripture is clear on that. It is not anything that you have done. Um, it is God's choice and God's choice alone. And then the next one, this is what most people have a big issue with, the L. Limited atonement. <laughs> right, that's the objection. Yeah, that is throwing sola scriptura out the window. Um, now, you can argue that it's people's choice, and that's a different argument. But, uh, yeah, arguing 100%, that makes grace pointless. Uh, well, I guess grace would be all-consuming and all the other elements. Yeah, limited atonement. God has a, a select number of people that he has chosen to redeem. Uh, it is not for everybody. The gospel goes out to everybody, but only the ones who are called are going to hear the gospel and obey. Uh, that's the difference. All right, and then I. I'm probably spelling stuff wrong, too. All right, irresistible grace, meaning what? God drags you kicking and screaming into heaven? Is there... Right. Right. And that's what every part of us has fallen, including our wills. So our wills are never going to want what they should want because of sin on our own. And that's what we need, the Spirit working in our hearts to transform our thinking, to transform our desires. And if they are correctly ordered by the Spirit, who are we going to want to seek after? Right, we're going to want to seek after Christ, after God. We're going to want to seek after the one who has changed our heart. So he frees our heart to seek what it should. Because the, the problem with just choice and leaving it at that is that our choices are messed up. Our choices are fallen just like everything else. Our reasoning is not there Uh in this fallen world. And so God's grace, once he begins that work in you, he's going to complete it. And that carries us into the last one, which is what? Yeah, perseverance of the saints, or you can say preservation of the saints. I'm just going to put preservation saints. Yeah, uh, extra points if you can read all of my words up there today. Uh, There's an acronym for everything. 
But yeah, but so they had their five points, and we countered them with our five points to, to teach and to uh, argue against them. That's that's how this originated. But it's it's a great teaching tool to explain the doctrine of election. Uh, and actually, one thing I want us to read from the Westminster Confession. It's in chapter three. All right, so in chapter three, I believe it's. Chapter 8. So, yeah, if you go to the Trinity hymnal in the back, there's a confession. So most of y'all are already ahead of that announcement. But, yeah, if you go back there, there's chapter 3, and then we'll look at 3.8. Thank you. Yeah, I probably should have put page numbers. Thank you, Israel. Um, and this is a problem, especially people who have just not, just recently understood election. They People call them uh, cage-stage Calvinists. They like to go around with a baseball bat. They paint a lecture on the side. They just hit people with it. Uh, that is not what we think you should do with this doctrine, all right? And that's why I want us to read 3.8. So it says that the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto, so just listening to the word, obeying it, may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So it's, it's meant to be an aid to help you understand that if you're trusting in Christ and you're hanging on to the promises and you're seeking after him, that God's going to finish the work. He's going to work in your heart and save you. Uh, so shall this matter... Uh, sorry, I lost my... So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Does that sound like something you go out and try to evangelize by starting with election? No, not so much. It's not something you go and beat people in the head with either. It's something that, as we understand, it's just building our appreciation. It's to build us up in praise. It's to make us that much more fervent to go out and share the gospel and grow in our faith. That is the proper use of this doctrine, not to try to just argue with people and be difficult which, of course, as humans, we love to do. All right, let's look at a few verses to back all these things, and then we'll continue on. I think we have time to do this. So go to Romans 3. And there's a lot of passages for all these points, but we're just going to look at a few for the sake of time. So we'll look at verses 10 through 12, but, of course, if you go through the second, second half of chapter 1 all the way through, the first half of chapter 3, it's all about total depravity. It's all about the fallen state of man and his heart. Uh, but 10 through 12 summarizes it well. So it says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Any exceptions given? There's only one exception to that statement, and it was Christ. Uh, us on our own, this is us. In the fallen state, rebelling against God, enemies of God. And Ephesians 2, which we'll look at in a second, gives the same idea that we are dead in this state of sin. That's the total depravity. All right, go ahead and go to Ephesians 2, because we need it for our next point as well. So Ephesians 2, and while you're turning there, I'll read you the first two verses that go with the total depravity. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the, this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that means Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
So again, just your state of death in sin. That's where you're at without Christ, without the Spirit at work. All right, but then go to verses 8 through 9. So this is for unconditional election, that it was nothing in you that earned you salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, it's not us, it's not anything we did, it's God's grace, it's his gift. All right, now go back to Romans 9 for limited atonement. I do apologize, we have to walk through these quickly, but that's where we are with time. This is just about God's ability to choose whomever he wills and that he does choose some and not others. So chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? God's part, because that is the normal objection against election, right? It's unjust for God to do that. All right, Paul's answer, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. If you go to 21 through 23, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? Notice that the same lump. Not two separate lumps, not lump. Well, this was a better lump, so I'm making vessels for honor out of this lump. It's the same lump. And God just chooses out whomever he wills according to his uh, good pleasure. All right, and then uh, let's see. Go to John 6. This is for irresistible grace. Because if it was resistible, that would mean God starts working in our heart and we say, ah, no, thank you, goodbye. And we walk away and God and the Spirit just is sitting there wondering what just happened. That would be resistible grace. I'm, of course, being mostly silly about how I said that. Uh, But irresistible grace... Is very different. Jesus says in John six thirty seven, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So if the Father has given them to Christ, God will call them to Christ. That's the idea. They will want to go to Christ. Their hearts will be transformed to desire Him and God and truth. Uh, and that also feeds well into the last point, pers- uh, preservation or perseverance of the saints, that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if you are God's elect, if God has set his love upon you and you are his child, he will never let go of you. He will carry you through, even if at times you are kicking and screaming, all the way into glories. Uh, go to Philippians 1.6. Many of you may be able to quote this without even needing to look at it. But we'll flip there nonetheless. All right, so Philippians 1.6, and notice the certainty with which Paul says this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, if God starts that work, 
He's going to keep working in your heart until you're home in glory. And then he won't have to work on the sin in your heart. You'll be in a state of perfection. And you'll just be growing in the glory and the praise of God throughout eternity. Uh, but he will not drop you halfway. All right, any questions uh, about those doctrines? Or there's, like I said, there's a lot of other passages and ways we could talk about it. But anything for now? You can always argue with me later after church. So desire. Right. Right. And that's why some people don't like the perseverance, and then they go for the preservation. And so when when people say the perseverance, they do mean preservation, that idea that it's God. But you're right, you can't get that wrong idea. And that's why I, I kind of lean towards now writing preservation for that reason. Uh, it's kind of the same as, I can't remember what the other, but people have come up with a different thing for total depravity. And I can't remember what it is now. But because some people hear that and they think man is as evil as he could be. And that's not what it means. It, it means that every part. And so anyway, we can argue about the acronym, but the point is the doctrine behind it. Yeah. It does. Uh, two dip. Yeah, two-dip isn't very good. Uh, it's got to be catchy, you know, uh, pretty flower. Uh, and plus, tulips are all over the Netherlands, and that's kind of part of where this came from historically. So it makes sense. It's tulip, right? Uh, I'm just being facetious. All right, let's move on to the, <laughs> the next section, uh, baptism. Now, here's the real fun one, right? Uh, good thing we have 15 minutes to finish everything on here. Uh, ooh, wow. Okay. All right, so why do we baptize? Big picture scripture passage. Why do we baptize? God's commanded it. So the Great Commission, uh, Matthew 28. Go therefore, or actually first says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what Jesus starts with, right? To give you hope and to tell you that it's actually possible. Then he gives the command, go therefore and baptize. Go therefore and make disciples. Uh, so he grounds it in his authority first. But he commands us that as we uh, bring people to the faith, as we bring them into the church, we baptize them, right? Uh, So the difference between Presbyterianism or Presbyterian view of baptism and a Baptist view of baptism is not over whether or not we baptize converts, bringing them into the church. We're not arguing about that. If someone comes to the faith who has been walking uh, with the world and against God and they are converted, they come to the church, we baptize them. We make a disciple of them. So that's not, in, that's not under debate. That's not in question. Uh, so we're not arguing over baptism, uh, whether or not to give it to converts. We're only arguing about whether or not we give it to infants. Do we baptize infants? And again, we're going to have to hit this way quicker than I would like. Uh, but let's start by going to Matthew 19. And so really the main difference between us, just while you're flipping there, between a Baptist view, a Reformed Baptist view is what I'm going to be mostly thinking of here, and a Presbyterian view is what the purpose of baptism is. Uh, is baptism you saying, I am trusting in God and I am professing this faith and I'm a member of the community? If it is from your point of view, then that's more the Baptist perspective. Whereas the Presbyterian perspective, and again, this is a boiling things down a lot, The Presbyterian perspective is saying that God is giving you this sign. God is the one speaking in the sacrament, not man. 
And that's really the biggest difference, the linchpin, if you will, between the two arguments. Um, it's really a covenantal uh, disagreement. As to what is this covenant sign really saying? That's really the part of the disagreement. But uh, looking at some passages, Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. So this is Jesus uh, speaking here. Uh, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So without getting into all the fine points and arguments, what's the big picture of that passage? Right. And are these just children throughout the world? Are these any children? Right. So the visible church, if you will, those children, God says, Jesus says, God says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Does that mean that they're automatically in glory and in heaven when they die? Was that a statement that they are 100% saved? No. But the promise is for them. And so as they cling onto that and believe it and trust in Christ, the promise is there. It's offered to them as members of the visible church. All right, so that's the first one. And we'll just look at one more. Go to Acts 2. And it's a very similar idea. So Acts 2, and we're looking at 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's speaking to, it's largely Jews at this point, but others are present as well. We know that, other Gentiles. But if you are going to believe in Christ and join the church, you will be baptized into the church. Okay, that's the big picture, right? Then verse 39. For the promise, the promise of the gospel, the promise of salvation is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so inherent in that verse is that the promise is to be generational, not meaning that every kid of a parent is going to also believe. That is not the promise. But the promise is that uh, the gospel is laid out before them in the church. The assumption is that they are members of the community unless they turn their backs on it and reject it. And so the promise is not just for you, but it's also for your children. And so if the promise of the gospel is for your children, if they are members of the covenant community, then so goes the argument. You place the sign of the covenant community on them, the sign that represents all the promises being given to them. Not the sign that is a statement that they are 100% saved, but the statement is that God has given them this promise because they are a member of the body. The kids are assumed as part of the church from the very beginning. They are assumed as part of the church. And so that's the argument uh, for why we baptize infants. Of course, there's other arguments as well. Uh, People point to household baptisms in Acts where it says this person was saved and their whole household. Well, household included kids, slaves, everybody. And so if the kids were in the house, they're going to be saved as well. Of course, that gets fun on the back and forth argument, but we don't have time to get into that. Uh, One more thing I'll mention on this before we go to the next thing is uh, 
Another argument is not that it is a replacement for circumcision. Baptism does not replace circumcision. It is a fulfillment of what circumcision was meant to point to. Circumcision, once Christ goes to the cross, becomes inappropriate for a couple of reasons. Do you know what those reasons are? What does circumcision involve? Right. The shedding of blood, really. And with Christ shedding his blood, that sign becomes inappropriate. But also you've got the issue of what do the Jews largely do? Not all the Jews, obviously, but largely what does the Jewish nation do with Christ and the message of the gospel? Do they believe it? No. Now, obviously, all the apostles are Jews, right? So, I mean, it's not that the whole, all of the true Jews lost it, but the faithful Jews and ethnic Israel are not the same thing. The Jewish nation largely rejects Christ and the message. But what do they still have? What are they still practicing from the Old Testament? Circumcision. So if the church also continued circumcision, might that present a problem? If that's your membership badge, saying as one of my professors would say, you're in the club, uh, so to speak. If that's the badge and the Christians have the same one, might that present a problem? You're just wearing somebody else's badge and sharing it, Right. And so not only is it inappropriate because of Christ shedding his blood, but also there needs to be a new symbol to mark the true church. And so the giving of baptism uh, is the replacement, yes, in one sense, but really the fulfillment of everything that circumcision was pointing and leading up to. And, of course, the assumption throughout the Old Testament is that the kids are included. They're circumcised as members of the covenant. And people like to say, well, there's no command in the New Testament saying you must baptize infants. Well, there's also no command saying the kids are no longer part of the covenant. And so that would be a pretty radical change to take place in the New Testament and no apostle to ever say anything about it. And so the kids are assumed as part of the covenant community. All right, I want to ask if there's questions, but are there questions that won't take the rest of the time to answer right now? You're welcome to argue with me after church. Okay. Well, yeah, go ahead and ask it, and then I'll, we can talk after or now. Uh-huh. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there that is a very deep question with a lot of, of avenues to tackle. Uh, but I'll try to give a very short answer right now. Is that yes, it does re- represent the spirit falling upon you. Uh, and that's what... Uh, we don't really have time, but immersion, pouring, and sprinkling are the three modes of baptism. And people love to argue about them. Well, the thing is, in all three, you can find biblical warrant for all three. And all three really are shown to represent the same things in all those examples in Scripture between pouring, sprinkling, and immersion. And those are cleansing of sin, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Um, am I missing one? Or is it just this thing? Sign and seal of covenant of grace, the pouring out of the Spirit, and the cleansing of sin. And so absolutely it represents that, but that doesn't mean that it happens at that moment. And that's something the confession says, that it's not tied to the moment that the sign is given. 
It is God presenting the promises, and then you have to lay hold of those promises. Uh, so it's like, just because we believe in election doesn't mean we take choice out of it. You have to choose to follow God, but you're not going to unless he's worked in your heart to allow that choice. Um, so the same is true with baptism. The gospel is offered and presented clearly, then you have to lay hold and make it your own. Uh, kids, cannot, it, kids cannot be saved on their parents' faith. They must lay hold of it at some point. Um, and at that point, they either continue in the covenant community, and we would say become communicant members, or they reject the faith and they walk away, which, of course, we hope it's the first and not the, the latter. Uh, yeah, so it's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. That, that's the biggest, most important thing. Uh, and then a cleansing of sin and uh, the pouring out of the Spirit. But it, again, it doesn't mean it happens at that moment. But uh, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about even your children are holy. It doesn't say they will be holy. It says they are holy. It's not saying they're saved even. But because they're a part of the covenant community, because they have a believing parent, even one believing parent, God has his grace in his hand upon those children. Um, they are his kids. Now, whether they grow up and walk away, that's um, another matter. But they are part of the church. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that's why, again, we don't argue that baptism for a conversion, uh, we're not arguing about that. If you come to faith, yes, it's a sign of the Spirit coming upon you, but it's not your profession. I mean, it is involving your profession, but it's God's statement that these promises are yours. Believe them. Uh, that's the simplest way I can say that. Uh, all right, let's talk about Moses for two seconds. I've got a bunch of verses there. But the big picture is some people like to argue only immersion or only sprinkling or only pouring I don't think any of them are mutually exclusive, to be quite frank with you. Uh, I think you can find grounding for all three. Uh, and the confession, actually, I believe, backs that in 28.3. Uh, all right. So 28.3, and you don't have to turn there because we don't have much time left here. But the dipping of the person into the water is not necessary. It didn't say it's wrong. It says it's not necessary. But baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. And uh, we had time. Ezekiel 36 is great for sprinkling. Hebrews uh, 9 talks about a lot of sprinkling imagery, uh, building on Old Testament imagery of cleansing ceremonies that are just sprinkling. And then you get pouring is really how the Spirit's described a lot as well, as being poured out, being poured onto you. so that language really, I think, allows for all three. Of course, we sprinkle here in the Presbyterian Church, uh, but the confession does not say that the others are wrong, and I think you're hard-pressed to say that they're wrong, just personally. Um, and I think when we argue so much about mode, I think we're missing the bigger picture anyway. Now, some people are pretty uh, adamant about their views on that, and that's fine. Uh, but just honestly, I don't, I don't see it being a grudge match. I don't see it personally. All right, we're almost out of time. I'm trying to think. I had three sections left. I shot high. I was shooting high, seeing what we could get to. Um, all right, we can do this one at least pretty quickly. So the primary views of communion, uh, the next one. So <laughs> I put in parentheses. <laughs> Some of those are jokes. Uh, alternate names are transubstantiation. That's the Catholic view. And that's that when the priest says the magic words, these elements truly become physically the body and blood of Christ. Now, there's a number of problems with that. One, it would mean that Christ's one-time sacrifice has become 
a one-time sacrifice plus every time we hold communion. Uh, and so we have nothing in Scripture to tell us that it literally is becoming flesh and blood. I mean, you taste it, you hold it, you feel it. It's just bread and grape juice. So it's more of a representation. But anyway, that's the Catholic view. Now, Luther uh, came up with a slightly different view, which uh, is consubstantiation, which I call Catholic light. And he wanted to distance himself from the Catholic Church. But instead of saying the blood and uh, the bread and the wine outright turn into blood and uh, the body of Christ, he said that it surrounds the elements. So Christ's body and blood surrounds the elements, but the elements at their heart are still, uh, anyway, it's just a Catholic light. I don't think it accomplished anything by him making that step. Now then, on the far other side of the spectrum, you have Ulrich Zwingli, who was a Swiss reformer. Uh, He was living at the same time of Luther and uh, a little before Calvin, but they did overlap some. But he held a strictly memorial view, saying, the Catholic Church has gone so far, I don't believe there's any of that. There is no physical change. There's nothing. It's just a memorial to remember. Well, but what do you know about 1 Corinthians 11 and the warnings about taking communion wrongly? If you take communion wrongly and you fail to discern the body and blood of Christ, that's the language in 1 Corinthians 11, what's the result? A possible result, I should say. Right, there's discipline that you can drink and eat on yourself through taking communion wrongly. Well, that doesn't sound like a purely memorial view to me. And so what we believe is is more Calvin's line of thinking, that it's a spiritual presence. There is a real spiritual presence of Christ when we're celebrating this meal. Nothing's changing form. There's not real blood and and body of Christ, you know, magically forming around. But Christ is spiritually feeding, feeding us and present with us in the meal. And so there is a real present. It's not just a remembrance, but it is a remembrance. Uh, but we don't believe there's a continuing sacrifice of Christ every time a church celebrates communion. All right, those are the four big views. I hit them fast. That makes sense to everybody. All right. Well, I guess we'll have to leave eschatology and creation views for another day. Maybe we can open with that next week. We'll see. Probably not. I don't want to talk about it too long. All right, well, any final questions before I close us in prayer? All right, well, keep in mind we are celebrating communion and worship today. Uh, so we just talked about those views. Remember, Christ is spiritually present with us. Uh, it's not just a remembrance. Um, he is feeding his people through this meal. So remember that even as we go through worship and prepare for that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your church. and We thank you that you have gifted your church with wise men, godly men over the centuries to uh, write down and help us understand your word. Because it is not always clear, it is not always plain to us, um, but we know that you speak to us through your word. So by your grace, Lord, we continue to study it and to seek to know you better. Lord, we do pray that you would aid us in that, that you would help us, that you would guide us, that you would help us to be united around the core fundamentals of the gospel. And then where there's more room for liberty or where things are less clear, uh, you would help us to show love even in disagreement. Uh, Father, help us as we move into worship and be preparing our hearts to hear your word preached, and also to see and to taste your word as it's preached to us through your meal. Now, Lord, we lift all these things up to you in this, in this morning uh, for the gathering of your people. In Christ's name, amen.